So tonight we're looking at Colossians. I've subtitled this sermon, What the Gospel Says. And um, admittedly, it's kind of a hard, Colossians is kind of a hard letter to, to, to subtitle or just to sum up with a short sentence. And maybe you'll see that uh, or see why that is so as we work through. Hopefully you picked up a note sheet as you came in and you can kind of follow along there in the way that we have um, outlined our study of this letter together this evening. So first we'll take care of some of the particulars as we do each time. The author of the letter to the Colossians is Paul. Perhaps uh, the, the title or the, the, the title uh, uh, of Colossians there in your Bible says, like mine, the letter of Paul to the Colossians. It's a relatively short letter. It's about four chapters in total. Not about. It is four chapters in total. Take about 15, 20 minutes to read uh, if you sat down to read it all in one sitting. Paul is the primary author, but as you'll notice in verse 1 of Colossians, we read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Seems that Timothy was a co-author of source, maybe, uh, maybe a, uh, an amanuensis, which is a fancy word for a secretary for Paul. Paul may have been dictating the letter and Timothy writing it down as they send it to the church in Colossae. The uh, letter itself was probably written uh, sometime around the year 62 AD while Paul was imprisoned toward the end of his life. Though Paul never himself visited the city of Colossae, which lied about 100 miles or so east and inland of the great city of Ephesus, there was a man named Epaphras, who we read about in the letter of Colossians, who met and heard the gospel from Paul while he was traveling in Ephesus. And Epaphras took the gospel that Paul preached back to his hometown of Colossae, spread the gospel there, and began gathering a church together. Word had eventually reached Paul from the churches, or from the church in Colossae, excuse me, regarding some likely theological threats or issues that were there. We've seen problems in churches in in some of Paul's letters already. There's problems in the uh, church at Rome, uh, in the letter to the Romans, between Jews and Gentiles not getting along together. A similar problem in uh, Galatians, as there were some who were saying that in order to really be a Christian, you had to be a Jew first. There were a whole host of problems in the dumpster fire of a church at Corinth. Um, anyway, so there, was a, there were problems in lots of the churches. Uh, Corinth was a, a church with many problems, and, uh, and, um, and, and Paul addressed the many of those in the, that first letter to the church uh, at Corinth in 1 Corinthians. And so there are some other problems here in the church of Colossae that have reached Paul, and he's writing a letter to them to address some of those concerns. And so he writes this letter to correct some problems, to, to address the issues there, but also to remind the church at Colossae who Christ is what they have turned from in turning to Christ, and to remind them what life in Christ is to look like as they follow him. Now, Colossians, interestingly enough, has a sister letter in the New Testament, and the sister letter to, Col- to Colossians is the letter to Philemon. Philemon is more a, a private letter from Paul to this leader in the church at Colossae named Philemon, but later on that letter was, uh, was, would, would have been read publicly in many churches and came to be understood as part of God's word to all of the church. Both letters, Colossians and Philemon, are, uh, would, were eventually carried back to Colossae in the hand of uh, two individuals, Tychicus and Onesimus. Onesimus was himself a bondservant. He was a household slave to Philemon. And Onesimus had previously run away from his master, Philemon, uh, met Paul somewhere uh, there in Europe, and, um, and then was changed by the gospel and then returned back to Colossae uh, with these two letters in hand. 
Now, if I were to summarize Colossians uh, as effectively as I could do in a few sentences, I would do it this way, and you have it in your note sheet. That Colossians is a letter of gentle correction against the errors of false teachers there in that city. The letter to the Colossians defends the divinity and incomparability of Christ. It encourages a life of faithful repentance by those who have come to know him. Following Jesus is nothing short of putting off the old worldly way of living to put on the new spiritual and Christ-like way of life. What the gospel says is that this is what it is to be a Christian. Uh, There are several themes that we could trace throughout Colossians, but I'll mention three uh, uh, for your interest tonight. The first is that Christ is Lord over all. We see that very, very clearly, especially in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1, which we'll look at in just a moment. Second theme is Christ the great Redeemer, the one who rescues sinners from their sin and reconciles them to God and to each other. And then we have, of course, the importance of holding to the gospel as received uh, by the church and, uh, and through Paul's ministry. Now, we do like to consider each book of the Bible in the scope of redemption history, those four major epochs of God's work to redeem human beings for His glory and for their good. Those four movements of redemption history are creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Creation, God creating everything, man in His image to know, love, and worship Him. The fall being Adam and Eve's first sin, which made them and all of their offspring sinners. The fall, which has affected all of us uh, as sinners and all of us who live in a world that is broken by sin. The third movement, which is redemption, God's plan, which He began to unfold even in the Old Testament, but brings to its climax and fulfillment in Jesus the Christ, the very Son of God. Uh, who lived a sinless life and died on the cross for sinners and was raised from the dead. And then there is that final chapter of redemption history, which we have yet to see, which is consummation. When Christ will return, call all believers to himself and set all things in the universe right. Now, the letter of Colossians falls particularly uh, uh, in this kind of era of redemption history, uh, of redemptive history, in that area of redemption, that that third movement uh, of God's work in rescuing sinners from their sin. There's so much about the gospel, the rescue of sin, the life uh, of repentance that is meant for believers to live. And so you may want to take a a writing tool, a pencil or pen, and circle that word redemption uh, just to help you to, to place Colossians in the scope of redemption history. Now, as you read Colossians on your own, as hopefully maybe you did this afternoon or will do later on this week, you need to know that Colossians is an epistle. That's just a fancy word for a letter. Epistles are often written to specific churches with a specific occasion or a specific conflict to address. Now, there is a conflict in Colossae, although we'll find in a little bit that the, the, the conflict is not as specific as we might would like to think. Most New Testament letters, most New Testament epistles begin with a theological foundation and then move to practical application. Paul does this almost routinely in his letters. The first half or so is usually theological implications. The last half or so is what all that means for you and how to live in light of these things. And so when uh, reading Colossians uh, or any epistle, use uh, questions like these to guide your reading and your application. First, what is the occasion? What is the issue? What is the conflict that the author is addressing? Second, what theological principles are guiding the letter? What, what are those truths that never change from which the author of that particular uh, epistle is drawing on to make application to 
the reader's lives? And then in what ways is the occasion of the letter similar to maybe the present day, similar to situations that we might be facing today? And how do those principles applied to the church then apply also to the church in whatever conflict we may be facing today? So Colossians, subtitled, What the Gospel Says. House rules. Your your home probably has them. Uh, They may be many, they may be few, but every home usually has a core set of distinct expectations and behaviors that shape the life of your home. I'm in favor of having fewer and broader rules like these. It's just easier to remember. In our home, we don't, we don't actually have any specific uh, written down or, or posted house rules, but our approach to behavior and to discipline in our house with our girls and even for ourselves, how we speak and act toward one another, all comes from a single question, or at least we try to. And that question that we often ask in our home is, what has God's Word said? So when our children, or even when we as parents misbehave or behave in an ungodly manner, a sinful way, or when a strange belief or strange moral maxim enters our thinking or our conversation, we ask each other, when we ask our children, well, what has God's Word said about that? And then taking stock of our sinful actions, taking stock of our wrong thinking, we repent, we apologize, we seek forgiveness, we evaluate what we have been told or taught from outside the home, and we change our thinking to follow Scripture. Asking what has God's word said is just as effective, maybe even more, than yelling at and berating disobedient children. Somebody should tell this pastor to figure that out. Asking a simple question like what has God's word said is more encouraging, it's more enabling for repentance than mere guilt, and it's always gently true and certainly unavoidable. The church at Colossae some 2,000 years ago was in some manner of disarray and confusion. Strange teaching and odd behavior had crept into the body. And when Paul received news of this, he wrote to them to remind them of the house rules for Christians. The rules are not many, and they're fairly simple. For they all stem from Paul asking and helping the Colossians to answer the question, What has the gospel said? And with that, we turn to the text of Colossians today. We won't read all of it, but we'll read some larger portions of it. So I hope that you'll keep your Bibles open as we work through this. The first thing that the gospel says, the first thing that it implies for us today, is that we lead with relationship. This comes to us in the greeting and prayer that Paul writes in chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. It's always good to begin hard conversations with loved ones by reminding them of your deep love for them. This Paul does in the beginning of his letter to the Colossians. He does not do this to butter them up. He doesn't do this to soften their hearts for the coming storm of rebuke later on in the letter, but to genuinely declare his love for the church in this city. Paul's love is not predicated on the Colossians' loveliness, but on the beauty and the triumph, the hope of the gospel of Jesus. His love is rooted in what the gospel has declared true love is and where true love comes from. So hear his words to the church, beginning in verse 3 of Colossians 1. He says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have had for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you. And indeed, in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our uh, our beloved fellow servant. 
He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul is thankful for and loving toward the church, not because of who they are, but because of who Christ is. Do you see that? And his expectation and his prayer for the church is that they will grow up and live as Christians who have been made wise and knowledgeable by the truth of the very gospel itself. Rules without relationship lead to rebellion. Have you heard that saying before? I've certainly seen the fruit of it in my parenting at times when I've demanded behavior from my children without expressing first my love and lifelong desire for their holiness. In the church, we will sometimes have to correct one another. We may have to correct wrong teaching about the gospel. We may have to correct sinful behavior and call one another to repentance. We may have to occasionally restrict members from leadership positions and even the Lord's table, though we pray never to have to do this. When we make correction, as we will be certain to have to do in the church, be it light or strong, let us always learn to lead with relationship. Our relationship in the church is grounded in the gospel. It's been purchased and made available to us in Jesus, in whom we have rescue from sin. It is a gift from God the Father. Our relationship to one another has a foundation that transcends this world. So let us always remember this when it is necessary to correct others. The gospel says lead with relationship. It says also, when you're addressing particularly problems of conflict, to start with the gospel. To start with the gospel. And this we see Paul continuing in verses 15 through uh, the first part of chapter 2 or so in Colossians. We should be quick to note that Paul does not first, uh, first address what is wrong with the Colossians, but first what is true for all Christians. He begins by discussing and reminding the Colossians of the preeminence of Christ in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1. These few verses, which we'll read in just a moment, compose what may be an early Christological hymn, perhaps sung among Christians as a musical reminder of the supremacy and preeminence of Jesus. Follow along with me in verse 15 of chapter 1. Paul reminding them of who Christ is. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Some deep, deep, deep stuff there in those verses. Were you able to catch all that was declared true about Jesus, the founder of our faith? Uh, my guess is you might need to go back and read that again to see all the things that Paul is stacking together that are true about Jesus. 
he relates to us just in brief form the image that, that Jesus is the image of God, that Jesus is the creator of all things, that he is the owner of all things, that he existed before all things, that he is the head of the church, the first to rise from the dead in resurrected fashion, never to die again in his glorified body, he is all, and, and that all that God is dwells in him, making him king over all and the king of peace by dying for sins on the cross. One thing is certain. If we were to base our life as Christians on Christ, we are going to have to come to him as humble servants and loving subjects of the all-powerful God and King of the universe. Paul continues as he is reminding the Colossians of what the gospel is about the reconciling nature of the gospel. There is reconciliation even for Gentiles, those who were once far off from God. In verses 21 through 23 of chapter 1, we see this, that even as king of the universe, Jesus provides peace, not just for his kinsmen, the Jews, but even for Gentiles, those who are far off. Even for Gentile sinners like these Colossians, there is hope for reconciliation with God. Jesus does this, as Paul says, by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I wonder, friend, do you fear coming to Jesus as king of the universe? Faced with that idea, are you timid and afraid to approach him? Do you wonder if your sins can ever be forgotten by God and your relationship to your creator mended? Can you really be justified to God? Well, fear not and wonder no more. For Jesus has made possible not only relationship with one another, but also with God, your creator, as well. He did this, Paul says explicitly, by dying to pay the penalty for your sins and by rising from the grave to give you new and everlasting life. You then need only to trust him, to follow him as king, and to continue, as Paul writes, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. This good news has been Paul's ministry, the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. It's been what Paul has given his life to, even among those people that he's never met, like the Colossians. Teaching this gospel is a stewardship given by God to him. Declaring it to Gentiles and suffering for his faith as a disciple of Jesus has been Paul's life's work since coming to know Jesus. It is hard work. He doesn't shirk from that. He doesn't pull any punches. But it is work that he, that he says that Jesus does through him it is the goal of the gospel for all that Paul has occasion to know. And even those like the Colossians whom he's never seen face to face. Hear what Paul says at the end of chapter 1 beginning of verse 28 through the first verses of chapter 2. He says, Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, another nearby city, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Christian, how do you feel about correcting others when it comes to matters of faith? I think most of us, if forced to admit it, would say that we prefer to leave well enough alone and avoid conflict. Uh, Not all of us seek to be peacemakers. Some of us like to be just peacekeepers. Others of us still like to be peacemakers 
praying for us. I don't know how to say that. But. We might take an approach to conflict like, you know, if that's what they want to believe, they can. They, they, they may be wrong, but I don't want to rock the boat too much. I don't want to disappoint them. I don't want to hurt their feelings. Paul's conviction about the divine person of Jesus and the wonderful hope of the true gospel does the very opposite in him. Because Jesus is God and King of the universe, and because the gospel that Jesus died to fulfill is such good news, Paul wades lovingly into the waters of correction when there's conflict, when there's misunderstanding, when there is potential heresy at play. He doesn't just want unity in the church. He wants unity in the church through and around the truth of Jesus. And this is what conviction about truth does to us. If we believe these things about Jesus, we too will correct wrong thinking about the gospel. Not because we enjoy being right, but because we love Jesus and we love the church for which he died. As the letter goes on, we see that the gospel says that we ought to stick with the gospel. Here we see in... uh, beginning in chapter 2, verses uh, 8 through 15 and and further on, Paul addressing the lies of false teachers there in Colossae with the truth of the gospel. Speaking of truth, this is precisely where Paul starts when he corrects the bad influence of these false teachers. Hear what he writes in chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, as he reminds the Colossians that they have been made alive together in Christ. He says, Uh, This is beginning in uh, verse 6, excuse me. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and uh, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Continue on in verse 13. You who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul's house rules start unequivocally with, what has the gospel said? Now, he could have begun by naming names and calling out false teachers, which he does sometimes in some of his other letters. Paul's not afraid to do that. But instead, here with the Colossians, he begins by calling the church to the gospel that he preached and to the gospel that Epaphras, that faithful minister and servant, delivered to them. The gospel is Paul's north star. It is his lodestone. It is the orienting truth of God's word and the life of every Christian. Remember where you started, Paul says, and remind yourself of what is always true in the gospel. Then after this, after reminding them that they've been made alive in Christ and the reality of new life in Jesus, then he he begins to, and very briefly, rebuke the false teaching. Now, I remember when I was going to seminary, we spent a good bit of time talking about the Colossian heresy or the Colossian controversy in my New Testament classes. And I remember, uh, I remember the conversations that we had about it, making it feel like, like this heresy was like really clear, really obvious, and Paul dealt with it very directly. But nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, in a moment, you're going to find that there's, all, there's very little that you can actually know for certain uh, about the false teaching that was spreading there. Paul's, uh, everything that we know about the false teaching that was spreading in Colossae comes to us in Paul's brief correction. And we can read it in verses 16 through 23 of chapter 2. Follow along with me. Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together though its joints, uh, through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Clear as mud, right? (laughs) Many have tried to figure out what exactly the error was in the Colossian church. Some have argued that it was Gnosticism. Others argue that it is a form of Jewish legalism akin to the Judaizers who said that to really be a Christian, you had to be a Jew first, those that Paul corrected in the letter to the Galatian church. Paul's correction, though, seems mostly to do with issues of, as he says a few times, asceticism. Uh, that, that is a life of, of rejecting physical pleasures and, and is flavored with some Jewishness. He talks about Sabbaths and keeping festivals and new moons and things. This has led some to think that the issue in Colossae is a false teaching that is related to some sort of Colossian or regional Jewish pagan folk religion. It'd be like uh, maybe if, uh, if there was a, a mixture of New Age spirituality and uh, maybe, uh, maybe a Native American uh, animistic uh, kind of uh, uh, worship uh, coupled in with the church as well. We would see some, just some strange things coming out like this. Throw in a little Buddhism too and you're on your way to a great controversy. There may have been some sort of shaman-like figure who had come to be a part of the church in Colossae and rose to prominence as a particular teacher and was beginning to gain a following. We're not really sure. But there is in the false teaching an apparent reverence for certain things, and a reverence for Jewish festivals, a reverence for asceticism, that is, again, denying your, your, your body physical pleasures like food and enjoyment of other people and relationships and things. There is uh, something to do with worship of angels that all has a sense of something magical about it. What is most interesting about Paul's correction of false teaching, I think, is the relative brevity of it. He spends like eight, nine verses correcting this problem, and that's it. He doesn't spend much time on what is wrong, and he is able to move rather quickly through it because he spent so much time already reminding the Colossians of what is true. We live in an odd time in human history. It seems anymore that we, especially in the global West and even in the church, are known more and more by what we are against than what we are for. If you were to ask a random non-Christian on the street what they thought a Christian was, you would, be, you would more than likely hear more about what we are against than what we are for, uh, more about the things that we protest and dislike than the things that we know for certain and believe with conviction. Take note that this is not the case for Paul, and this is not how Paul deals with theological issues in the church. He doesn't write out a long list and a long diatribe about all the various facets of this false teaching that are wrong and why they are wrong and how terrible those are who teach it. Instead, he spends vastly more space and time reminding the Colossians of who Christ is and what the gospel is for and what the gospel has done. There is a godly wisdom in the household maxim What has the gospel said? There's a godly wisdom in the simplicity of house rules, as simple as asking a question, what has the gospel said? 
In this, it is infinitely easier and clearer to stand for one true thing than to stand against innumerable falsehoods. This is precisely Paul's trajectory, Paul's course. And I would encourage us, dear Christians, let, let us make this our course too. Let us be known in the world by what we are for. We are for the hope that Jesus gives to sinners of salvation. May the world know what we are for long before they ever know what we are against. And in knowing what we are for, uh, let our convictions speak, speak clearly and even for themselves on the things that we do not approve of. Paul moves on. And the next question we have about what does the gospel say is in regard to how people live. And the answer to that question in the next section of his letter, beginning in chapter 3, is that we are to live out the gospel. That's what the gospel says. Live it out. Live out this truth. We can say for sure about the false teaching facing the Colossians that it was rooted in the wisdom and religion of the world and not in the truth of Christ. It is a dead religion that comes from old sinful patterns of living. And so like old, dirty, ratted clothing, it needs to be taken off so that believers can put on the new self as we read in chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Putting off the old, putting on the new is the image of repentance and life in Christ. Those who have been given new life in Jesus orient their thinking and their living around Him. Chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, set your mind on things above. He continues in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The new self is in every way opposite to the self-centered, selfish, self-seeking habits of sin, isn't it? And let's be honest with ourselves. There's a part of us that still likes many of those old self behaviors. How can we do this? How can we put off the old and put on the new and persevere in this new way of living that, that Paul encourages the Colossians to do? We do so with the peace of Christ, with the word of Christ, and with thankfulness. Hear how Paul encourages the church beginning in verse 15 of chapter 3. He says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. How are we to put off the old, put on the new, and continue doing it? By allowing the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts, by allowing the word of Christ to dwell in us richly, and by doing everything with thanksgiving. Doing everything with thanksgiving means literally everything. All the things you do, 
are to be done with thanksgiving, with thankfulness, with gratitude. It means, and as we see in verses 18 through, uh, of chapter 3 through the first verse of chapter 4, it means embracing God's design for husbands and wives in marriage with gratitude to God for their differences. It means respecting and obeying our parents, kids, when we are under their care, and as God's gifts for our flourishing. And it means, parents, loving our children as God's gifts for our sanctification with glad hearts. Parents, do you see your children as God's gifts to you for your sanctification, for your growth and holiness? If you haven't begun to see them uh, that way yet, uh, just saying it out loud, I think, will help you to see that. Living and doing everything with thankfulness means working with glad hearts for those who have authority over us, even if they are at times abusive, knowing that God sees our work and longs to be glorified in it. It means also being gentle and generous, just and fair with those whom we have authority over, knowing that we will answer to God for how we have treated those who work for us. New life in Christ dramatically changes and impacts every single part of our life day to day. But it impacts our day-to-day ministry too. Not just the way that we live in the world, but the way that we live for Christ in the world, the way we serve Jesus in the world around us. In chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, we see this on display. That gratitude for our salvation and the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ is to spur us on to join the gospel work in the world. In these verses, Paul asks the Colossians to pray for him for open doors to the gospel. Yes, but he also invites the Colossians to join the gospel cause by living with such grace that their example would prompt questions from others about the gospel. He says in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Living out the gospel has implications not just for our personal lives, not just for our private lives, but for how we live publicly as well. It has implications for what we speak, for what we say, for the hope of Jesus that we declare to a watching world. New life in Christ is utterly different from the way of the world. New life in Christ denies self. It embraces Jesus. It follows after him. Is it easy? Heavens no. But in living this way, we will certainly find that it is worth the work. For in our dying to self, Christ is shown as the way to life. In our thankfulness, Jesus is shown as the giver of all good gifts. In our obedience, Jesus is displayed as the true source of all delight for us. And in our declaring the hope that we have in him, Jesus becomes the hero of our lives to a watching world. This is not only what the gospel has said. This is the life that the gospel produces in followers of Christ. We've come now uh, already and quickly to the closing section of Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, which I think is an answer to the question, what does the gospel say? answers it this way, that we remember the gospel in all that we do. We remember the good news of Jesus Christ in all we do and everywhere we go and with everyone that we have contact with. As Paul here closes his letter, he mentions many people by name. We could, uh, we have time, we'll read them. Beginning in verse 7 of chapter 4, he says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who's one of you, they will tell you of everything that's taken place here. 
Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision party among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Throughout the course of his letter, and here especially in his last verses, Paul mentions no less than 12 individuals by name and two other congregations by name besides those in Colossae. He mentions also the church in Laodicea and the church in Hierapolis. He sends greetings on behalf of his ministry partners, and he greets personally many who are in the Colossian congregation. Paul's personal greetings are, are a reminder that what the, of what the gospel has said to the Colossians, that the gospel has said also in the same way to many others who have been called by God to give their lives for Christ and for the sake of the good news too. The church at Colossae is not the only group of recipients of this gospel. It is spreading throughout the world. Remember this church. This gospel, we find, finally has the power to create a family out of misfits, out of outcasts, and even former enemies by worldly standards. The family that the gospel creates is the very family of Jesus, who himself, as we've read, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here in the family of faith, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. There's a reminder to those that God has used in the gospel. See that you fulfill the ministry that you received in the Lord. I love that Paul's end to his letter is just a reminder of the, the almost global effects of the gospel in this day that it has reached many people in various cities and, and people of different backgrounds, that it is changing lives everywhere that it goes, even as God calls people to himself and uses them for his glory in the world. 